This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Daniel Mason, who is a psychiatrist and fiction writer. His novels include The Piano Tuner, A Far Country, and The Winter Soldier. He works as a clinical assistant professor in the Stanford University Department of Psychiatry. His novel Winter Soldier takes place during World War I and focuses on main character Lucius, who is a 22-year-old medical student who gets recruited to the war effort to serve as a full-fledged doctor. He is stationed in a remote valley in the Carpathian Mountains with one primary companion, a mysterious nun who is also a nurse named Sister Margareta. The novel follows Lucius in his precarious role as a surgeon and doctor who must navigate love and medicine while tending to the physical and psychological injuries of wounded soldiers. We began the interview with Mason discussing the genesis of the idea for The Winter Soldier. Originally, I had thought that I was going to write a very different book, a book about a psychiatrist in the 1920s in Europe, interested in the artwork of people um, at asylums in Europe. There was this real interest in that at the time. And so it was going to be a story about that. And in researching it, I realized that any doctor at the time would need to have a backstory of training. And so that pretty much meant the war. Um, all doctors would have served somehow in the war, whether in the home or on the front. And so then in beginning to research that, I came across this anecdote that came up again and again about how unprepared the Austro-Hungarian military was for the war and the number of casualties. And so because of that, they were forced to enlist not only regular doctors, but medical students, dentists, veterinarians, to serve as frontline doctors in the war. And so this this was at a time, I've been working on the book for a really long time, so I started about 14 years ago. And this was at a time when I had recently graduated from medical school and was still sort of amazed by the experience and terrified of the kind of responsibility that was gonna come in the next steps of medical training. And so to imagine what it would have been like for someone in a similar position 100 years ago to all of a sudden find themselves thrust out into the middle of nowhere with the kinds of responsibilities that someone really with much, much more training should have. This was astounding to me and seemed like a great place to hang a lot of the questions that I was thinking about myself. So once you alighted on this idea that doctors were being thrown into the field without the proper training, and in many cases, medical students who haven't even finished medical school or really practice on real patients, what sort of ideas were really nagging at you that you wanted to contemplate as you wrote this? I think very early on, I was drawn to the setting. It was very new to me, I had read in school stories like All Quiet on the Western Front and grown up with this image of the First World War as this place of trenches and mud and um, and these, these long stalemates in which neither side is moving much. And so to be reading about the Eastern Front was a totally new space. And so to be thinking about these larger 
these larger spaces, the, the movement of men by horses, the, the kinds of encounters in which these old-fashioned armies in which you have Cossacks on horseback, you have other soldiers carrying lances with banners and are, are encountering modern warfare. This was something which was really, this really drew me in. Just the images of it were something that was very, were very striking. I, early on, I hadn't imagined that the character of Margareta, the nurse that he meets at the hospital, was going to be a key character. And in the book, Lucius arrives at the hospital that he, he has been dispatched to, thinking that it's going to be a normal hospital that he's read about in the paper with an x-ray machine and a bacteriological laboratory and other doctors. And he gets there, and there's no other doctors left. They've fled. And all the nurses, except for one, have died of typhus, and she's the only one. And originally, that was just a step in the book, because it was going to be this longer book. He was going to go there. He was going to spend time with her. Maybe there was going to be a romance. You know, initially, no. Later, yes. But it was going to be something that was very self-limited, given the amount of time that, that he was there. I think early on, I got very much drawn into her character because she's so unusual and um, because she's occupying this outpost, because she speaks in this language that was a lot of fun to write in, this sort of mixture of rough peasant speech alongside this, this very arched religious language. And so that, I would say, d discovery of her, because it, it felt like that more than I think other things that I've written. This, I showed up at this abandoned hospital and she was there and she talks like this, and she has this backstory that we're not really certain about. That was also part of the story that really drew me in. So one of the things that struck me was, you know, he definitely had to learn about how to amputate and how to help amputees recover and dealt with a lot of neurological issues. But he was dealing with the psychological care of the patients, too. And I think that was almost as shocking to him as the physical care. And I'm curious if you can talk about writing this as a medical doctor and a psychiatrist. So one of the, I would say, signal injuries of World War One that was new was shell shock. And even though psychological trauma secondary to something that occurs in war has been recognized for a very long time. What happened in World War I was on a scale that was un unprecedented. Very early on in the fighting, there are reports that returned to the home fronts on all sides of the battle that soldiers were coming down with these new combinations of symptoms that were different than anything that they had seen before. And in the beginning, People didn't know what to make of them. Special medical investigators were dispatched to the front to examine these soldiers in, in hospitals early on. Now very famous papers were written about certain of these soldiers describing the symptoms that they had. But no one really understood what, what was going on. I think it's maybe worth saying that we have an image of post-traumatic stress disorder now as being a particular kind of syndrome and different people have different images of what that might be like but we often think of symptoms like flashback or symptoms of um, hypervigilance people really attempting to avoid memories of the trauma that they experienced 
But shell shock was something that clinically looked very different. So shell shock was a syndrome that presented with a high predominance of physical symptoms and very often neurologic symptoms. And so these were men who were showing up with arms that they, um, that they couldn't move, limps, tremors, weakness, headaches, loss of vision, loss of speech was very common. And yet at the same time, when the doctors carried out the regular examinations that they were used to doing for neurological injuries, these conditions didn't follow the typical distribution of the nerves as they were understood. And so Lucius has no idea what he's looking at when he encounters it. He's a medical student, and, and the top neurologists in Europe didn't know what they were looking at when they, when they first encountered this. And so he tries to remember from his textbooks the kinds of injuries that he encountered, the, the little bit of psychiatry that, that he learned, but none of it really, really makes sense. None of it is something that he can, that he can fit to the, to the soldiers that he's seeing. And so, like the rest of the medicine that he learns, he, he goes about trying to take care of these men haphazardly. And what was it like for you to write about this? Because you are a doctor and a psychiatrist. And did you learn anything or was anything surprising for you or did it trigger anything in how you operate as a doctor? Mm, that's a wonderful question. There's a lot in reading about this that, that affected me as a doctor. I think, so, I mean, to begin the, the challenge of writing it as a, as a physician, I think being a physician in a way it was almost harder writing some of these scenes because I had to get myself in the mindset of a person then and what they knew then as opposed to making him a doctor of the 21st century who has this long history of the study of psychological trauma behind him, it's as mysterious to him as antibiotics would be. That's another thing that shows up in the book. Like, like to him, the idea of antibiotics would be magic. It's, it's not part of something that he can use to take care of a patient. And so similarly, he doesn't know what to make of this. That was very hard to write because it meant shifting my understanding of what can happen after trauma entirely to get into his shoes. At, this, at the same time, he is taking care of a clinical syndrome, which is not a clinical syndrome that I see that often. But nowadays, people who present with physical symptoms or particularly neurological symptoms that are felt to have psychological origin uh, are, are generally diagnosed with something called um, functional neurologic disorder, and we still see it. Um, but it tends not to be this very common presentation that you see in, in people who have just been in combat. And so realizing that and realizing that the manifestation of how people psychologically respond to trauma has changed over time was something really very humbling because we tend to operate in this world of medicine where there's this assumption or there's this wish that somehow psychiatric illness is a biological disease like any other and follows certain predictable rules that it could be understood by understanding the brain and the body better. And yet that the manifestations of the psychological manifestations of trauma have changed so much over time really suggests the complexity of psychiatric illness and this profound role that society plays, that culture plays, that other ill people around you play in 
deciding how psychiatric distress is is expressed. And so that's had a big impact on my practice. How? The lesson that we can't just look for the same set of symptoms that are described in the textbook all the time. And that many people who come in asking for help, especially those who are coming from different cultures, may be suffering in a similar, from a similar cause, I could say, but are expressing it in a very different way. So it, it, it opens up the realms of possibility of how psychiatric distress is, is expressed. We also see in individual patients a kind of evolution of symptoms that's almost like the historical evolution of symptoms that we see looking at men who have fought during wars. So sometimes a person will come in with neurological symptoms, um, looking very much like a shell shock patient. And then over time, as they're treated, these may resolve, but then what may appear will be another set of symptoms that are more similar to contemporary PTSD symptoms. And it's hard to know what to make of that, but having this historical perspective helps place their, their symptoms in, 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 an, in another kind of, of context. It's so interesting that you can take the humanities part of your life and apply it to the scientific part of your life. I mean, do you feel like being a writer enriches your life as a doctor and vice versa? I feel that the interaction is really complicated. So I think that studying the humanities absolutely helps being a doctor. So that feels to me to be pretty unequivocal. But I, I think probably the most profound way is that there's so many incredible descriptions of what it's like to be both mentally ill and physically ill that, that one can read and draw from and understand what a patient's going through that really differ from what the clinical descriptions from typical biomedical texts offer. And the area of psychiatry that I practice, which is an inpatient psych psychiatry, we tend to take care of a lot of people who are going through experiences of psychosis. In, the, in this field, this is particularly true because psychosis is famous in psychiatry for being a condition which is difficult to understand. There was even uh, a long time ago a very famous definition of of delusions as something which is ultimately ununderstandable, something which a clinician cannot cross an empathic barrier to understand. But when you read these texts written by people who are suffering from delusions or suffering from severe hallucinations, I feel you can approach the experience in a kind of understanding. And that's been immensely useful to me over time. I think that being a doctor affects my writing too, though that I found to be a little bit more complicated. I think that it in, in some ways, the practice of psychiatry and the practice of novel writing are similar in that both have at their core this attempt to understand other people's experiences. And yet, at the same time, our job is really different from the job of a writer. Our job is to as quickly as possible figure out maybe what's going on and what would be the best way what would be the best way forward? And as a novelist, I'm much more interested in how the relationship, say, if I'm writing about medicine, the relationship between a doctor and a patient might get very, very complicated and messy. That would make for a good novel, and that's what happens in this book. Whereas a practicing physician, I don't really want that. I want 
I want it to go well and predictably, and, and generally I don't want what happens to follow an exciting narrative. I want to kind of follow a very clear kind of narrative. But this has been a tension for me sometimes. Well, one of the things that I thought about was what are the things that war makes us do and what does it do to our identity and how we present ourselves to the world? It's a great question. I don't I don't think that I set out to write a war novel, even though the war dominates the story. Actual fighting occurs very, very briefly in the book. He, he sees and he's astounded when he sees it. It's all the shadows of war. It's all the it's all the background of war. And I think one thing that it offers for any character's development is a dramatic backdrop where issues that regularly people are spared confronting need to be confronted. He's a young guy who's at the beginning of the book, I'd say a relatively shallow person. He's um, a good student who likes learning, doesn't really see much in his patients other than their bodies and the diseases that they have and how he wants to take those diseases out. But being in the war forces a, a coming of age that I think is much more rapid than would have occurred to him and, and actually may have not have occurred to him. He's forced to, to come to terms with the people behind the illnesses that he's treating much more quickly than I think that he otherwise would have. Similarly, he's somebody who we know at the beginning of the book has a very hard time connecting with other people. And I think that the war creates this moment in which he can, he needs to reach out to others and find common humanity with others. And, and I wonder if there hadn't been the war, whether or not the relationship that he has with Margareta develops. Yeah, I mean, another thing that you mentioned earlier about being a doctor and making mistakes is that the stakes are so high when you're a doctor. And he's seeing all these people with not much experience and only Margareta to somehow help him navigate his way through. And he does make mistakes. And a mistake really haunts him through the book. And I'm wondering a little bit more about your interest in this and writing that. He, early on in his time at, at the hospital, makes a kind of accidental discovery and begins to cure a person who, it seems to others, is, is incurable. And this bewitches him in this profound way, which then, to, to not give up the plot, or not to give up this this part of the story, it, it bewitches him in this profound way that will lead him then to make another mistake. And that kind of care was something that I was more interested in than say he operates or doesn't operate on somebody with an abdominal wound who he's not supposed to operate on because that's what the because of the high mortality rate, or he carries about a amputation which um, ends up getting infected, all the, the kinds of things which would happen all the time, and I'm sure are happening to him all the time, but they're accidents. Whereas the kind of mistake that he ends up making is a mistake that stems from a decision that he makes that comes out of, doesn't come out of malice, comes out of this incredible joy that one feels at times when all of a sudden 
we have the sense that we're helping somebody. That feeling of seeing someone get better because of something that I've done is this incredible feeling. And I found as I've gone on that learning what to do with that feeling and that excitement is as much of a challenge as learning to do learning to deal with what happens when things are not going well or what happens when the wrong clinical decision is made or a person's not getting better. Because when something goes well, then you're confronting not only the course of the illness and the patient, but you're also confronting these complicated feelings within within yourself. And, and in this case, that's something that he's not he's not prepared for, not prepared for what what happens when the decision that he thinks is a good one turns out not to be. So one of the things that that makes um, people very fallible during wartime is that it seemed like there's a lot of search searching for people you've lost. I mean, maybe we see soldiers who have photographs of their families and they are separated from them. Or at one point we meet a character who's searching for her husband after the war. And there's other incidences that really take place in your book of the idea of searching for lost loves. And it's this interesting thing because you're holding on to something that is from the past, but it is dominating your presence. We, we live in such a connected age that this was another area of the book in which I felt like stepping into the, the mind of someone from 100 years ago felt like this radical departure from the person that I've become. That somebody who leaves their small little village and walks a mile away is suddenly out of contact with everybody else in the, in the village. And were anything to happen, there's no, no guarantee that they're going to be able to find anybody who was there ever, ever again. And the war, with the amount of disruption and the number of people who were forced to become refugees and, and flee the areas of fighting, led to this story being played over and over and over. And during the war, there are these accounts of how train stations were filled with family members of soldiers who would stand in the station with pictures of their of their sons or brothers or husbands, showing them to all the other soldiers who were disembarking, just trying to find out where, where these men were. And often it would be years before people were able to find each other. And this is it's so painful to imagine someone then, but also such a different kind of world that the person was living with. It, to be physically separated from someone was something that was so led one to be so profoundly vulnerable. And so ultimately, that becomes one of the big themes in the book. People are separated from each other. Initially, it's interesting, there, there are ways in which the army was very connected. So mail, the mail service was very good. If you, could, if you knew where someone was, you could often get a letter to them quite quickly. You could get care packages to them quickly. Um, he gets sent candies by his mother in the book. But once those lines of communication were down, it was very difficult to, to find somebody. And all of the photographs, there's some incredible photographs from this period of time, but all of these photographs of people walking on the roads, it's, it's very painful to imagine that each of this person is separate, each of these people separated from somebody else, um, from, many, from many other people. And then the war is going to end and each one of them is going to try to find um, 
the person or the people that they've lost. Do you see that in your patients that longing is a theme at all in their psychiatric health or problems or is it I mean I know that you're dealing with inpatients so you're dealing with such serious cases but I kind of feel like there's such a longing inherent in the in the human experience I think that it's it's inherent in all levels of experience and especially the connection to other people so even even somebody in very acute throes, say, of hallucinations, um, who seems in some ways cut off from the regular bustle of life, that person, um, as they'll tell you then or they'll tell you when they get better, one of the most profoundly difficult parts of their experience is the loneliness of their experience and the isolation of their experience and the longing to to connect to others there's this wonderful phrase of freud in which he's talking about his goal not being to cure people of unhappiness um, or suffering that that's a normal part of human experience his goal is to relieve them of certain symptoms that are preventing them from experiencing normal human suffering and i think of that a lot that that in many ways in this book for instance lucius can't enter normal life he can't and normal life is going to bring its tragedies he can't and it's going to bring its longing but he can't enter normal life if he's going to be cured it's not going to make him a happy person it's going to make him a person who's going to have happiness and who's going to have sadness and is going to experience all, all of it. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? So this is from The Leopard uh, by Giuseppe de Lampedusa, which is a book I just love. And thinking about process, it's this book that he spent his life on. Um, and thinking about difficulties and rejection, it's a book that he couldn't get published but to me has some of the most extraordinary sensual descriptions of, of any book that I've read. So this is from the, the opening chapter. But the garden hemmed and almost squashed between these barriers was exhaling scents that were cloying, fleshy, and slightly putrid, like the aromatic liquids distilled from the relics of certain saints. The carnations superimposed their pungence on the formal fragrance of roses and the oily emanations of magnolias drooping in corners. And somewhere beneath it all was a faint smell of mint mingling with a nursery whiff of acacia and the jammy one of myrtle. From a grove beyond the wall came an erotic waft of early orange blossom. It was a garden for the blind, a constant offense to the eyes, a pleasure strong if somewhat crude to the nose. The Paul Neron roses, whose cuttings he himself had bought in Paris, had degenerated, first stimulated and then enfeebled by the strong if languid pull of Sicilian earth, burnt by apocalyptic Julys. They had changed into things like flesh-colored cabbages, 
obscene and distilling a dense, almost indecent scent for which no French horticulturist would have dared hope for. The prince put one under his nose and seemed to be sniffing the thigh of a dancer from the opera. So, so what I love so much about this scene is one, it begins with these, this incredible exploration of smell. I can imagine what some of these smells smell like, but there's others. The jammy smell of myrtle, I don't know what that's like, or the nursery riff of acacia, like you kind of guess something to talc me, perhaps. But it's hard to conjure it all up, but I love the way they build on each other. It's humorous, uh, it's, it's overindulgent. And then the second paragraph, when he writes about it being a garden for, for the blind, it extends itself beyond the description into narrative time so that the roses are not just roses that are being described, but they're roses which connect him to an, an earlier experience. We get a genealogy of these roses. They've been bought in Paris, then they've de degenerated, and we see them almost in this incredible fast forward, bursting in simulation, and then collapsing upon themselves um, by this lang the languid pull of, of Sicilian earth. We see the Julys. This is all capped up, captured just in the description of roses. And then I love the way that it ends humorously, bringing him back to the thigh of this dancer from the opera, which connects us to this person that he is, who has this life as a rake and a womanizer, who is a person of the senses, who, who is the kind of person who would have brought these sorts of roses back from Paris and who would have these kinds of memories stimulate stimulated it's both humor humorous um and he at the same time really conjures up that that space and then a page later it all becomes very much darker and much more tragic when we realize that it's in the lemon groves right near this where a soldier has dragged himself to die a, who, a soldier who's been stabbed in the belly has dragged himself to die and so these intense smells and, and these erotic memories all of a sudden come crashing to a halt with the description of this of this anguished young man. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Since I knew we were going to be talking about craft a lot, I chose a, a, um, a section which was a section that I thought was an answer to a problem that I was running up against. The section that I'm going to read takes place in Vienna. Lucius has just received his orders to be sent to the front. And this is after several times of being frustrated, receiving orders, and then not being able to go. But finally, he's given his, his orders. This is the section. Given his disappointments, Lucius didn't believe it. He heard nothing for the next four days. But then, back in Vienna, in the trains division of the headquarters of the Imperial and Royal Army, a second-level clerk rose from his desk and, carrying a ledger, made his way to the corresponding second-level clerk in the medical division two flights down, returning with an order bearing a double-headed eagle stamp, which he presented to the first-level clerk in trains for another stamp, then walked down four flights of stairs and out the building and through the snow to the ad hoc office for the Eastern Theater, where the order with both stamps was delivered to a corresponding second-level clerk in the transportation division, who entered the name into a ledger, applied his own stamp, returned the order, 
brought out a second order and sent it down to the head clerk for trains in the medical division, Eastern Theater, who, after a lunch of stale rye and egg sprinkled so heavily with paprika, they would stain the oily fingerprints he left in the margins of the page, rose, and with a ledger tucked inside his coat, went outside, stopping briefly to appreciate the beauty of the falling snow on a pensive puto above a doorway and on the glistening rooftops before we crossed the boulevard to the military post office. So in writing the book, there was always this challenge of how to write the history. And certain questions were ones which were more easily solved, like what kinds of medical problems he might encounter or the names of particular divisions. But I found the part that was most difficult, and this has always been the case for me for writing stories set during distant historical periods, is they were the that the mechanics of everyday life are not what's talked about in the historical accounts. There's no manual which says, how do you find your way to the train station? Or how does the ticketing system work? And what seat do you get? And what are the things that you can say to your commanding officer or not? This was a lot harder. There were no sources for that. And in writing about this period, one of the challenges that I found myself constantly running up against was that the Austro-Hungarian bureaucracy was so astoundingly complex that I had the hardest time figuring out who would be issuing what kind of orders when and what a soldier was supposed to do. And so eventually I'd run through enough head scratching moments of trying to figure out how actually would Lucius be dispatched that it occurred to me that that old adage of if there's a problem with the novel, make it a problem of the novel, meaning something that I'm struggling with as a writer, maybe I'm struggling with because it's something that the characters would have struggled with. And so in this case, the challenges that he confronts with the bureaucracy and the dizzying labyrinth that he has to run through became something which I felt that I could use for absurdist, even humorous purposes myself when trying to negotiate those those kinds of labyrinths. Where do you write? I'm an itinerant writer. I write sometimes on our kitchen table, sometimes on benches, sometimes in the library. And I usually write for a few days in one spot until I find myself having more difficulty and then I move to a new spot. So I'm constantly moving. I don't think I've worked in the same spot for more than a week. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? The outdoors, even though a lot of my writing is set in the outdoors. So a lot of times when I find myself hiking or at the beach, I find myself thinking about what I'm writing. At the same time, I find there's a kind of clarity to being outside and being in the woods that I can't find in this world that I regularly live in surrounded by other people. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So my wife, She's also a fiction writer. Her name's Sarah Hodling, and she's working on her second novel now. And she's an extraordinary editor. She teaches writing as well. And so I feel like I have this private writing instructor living in my own house. So I show her the work at all stages when I have a sentence that I'm struggling with or ultimately when I have a book that I think is complete. How have you dealt with rejection? So that's a hard one. I think my answer to being in the outdoors partially answers that. 
as a writer, there's so many periods of rejection, whether a sentence that I thought was good doesn't sound as good when I read it out loud at home, or when it comes to turning in a manuscript and receiving a note back from an editor saying that still a lot of work has to be done. And each time I've, I can't say that I've welcomed such news ever, but over time, I think I've come to recognize that that initial disappointment is useful and that others' responses always mean something. And so even if a person has a recommendation that I don't ultimately take, the fact that they've noticed and they feel the need to make that recommendation is something meaningful that can hopefully help the story. And what is your favorite word? There are a lot of choices out there for this one. So I thought that for this book, the word that I often come back to is the word masting. A masting is when a group of plants, trees in this book, reduce seeds in mass all at once as a way of overwhelming predators that might be there to to eat those seeds. And very near my house, there's a oak tree, which during periods of masting produces an extraordinary number of acorns. And I always wait under this tree while I'm waiting to cross the street. And they have a way of crunching beneath the feet that one day when I was writing periods about periods of intense fighting and imagining the bullet casings that would have been falling around a machine gunner, I had this thought that that it was it must have been like walking on these acorns that that fall after a masting. And I'd loved the word for a long time and I always wanted an excuse to use it. And then all of a sudden it was there. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Daniel Mason, author of The Winter Soldier. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.